Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by James Hardy Siding, the best siding on the planet. Oh, Weatherford, Texas. Hello, Kevin. Howdy. I was out in Weatherford earlier this week. I was pouring concrete out at Possum Kingdom Lake, and the guys lost my aluminum poles for my bull float and and this and i went went looking for them and man it was tough to find some but i, I finally found some out there in uh at sims over there in uh, weatherford texas i just started to say if nobody else has it sims probably does i took i took all that they had though so now they don't <laughs> <laughs> jim i just got a question i've got i had a new patio poured behind a, a new house that we bought uh-huh and and as luck would have it, it rained the evening that we poured the patio. And I got tarps over everything, but one little spot where the corner of the roof came off got rain damage on the new concrete. Yep. And I've got a I've got a, a cement patch for that from Lowe's or Home Depot, I don't remember which. And it covers everything about how to use it except how dry do my, does my concrete need to be before I put the patch on? By dry, you mean how long after a rainstorm, or how long do you need to let your yeah. original concrete cure? No, after a rain. Okay. After a rain, it, once the concrete dries to the point where you don't see the water on it any longer, you're good to put the patch on. Okay, and above 70 degrees? Uh, actually, I thought I think it goes a little cooler than that, but yes. Okay. So now so I'm gonna tell you up front that, though, that patch yeah. is gonna stick out like a sore thumb. Oh yeah, it, I knew it would. But, yeah. But I, you know, it's it's a spot about the size of a coffee can. Okay. It ran off the roof, so it's yep. not a big spot, but it's got to be patched. Yeah. Just brush out the loose stuff and put the patch in it. I, I would uh, vacuum it, use a shop vac to vacuum it out real good. Okay. Uh, and if you have a blower, blow it out. Uh, that, that'll that actually move more of it than the vacuum does. And, yeah, then you just go ahead and put your patch on. All right. I appreciate it. I'm going to watch that this afternoon on Channel 8. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. This one is roof replacement due to hail damage, and it comes from... Mike in Allen, Texas, I suffered hail damage to my roof recently in a hailstorm. Insurance has inspected the roof and is in the process of determining estimate for replacement. The roofing contractor that I'm planning to use wants to see the insurance estimate before giving me an estimate for doing the job. Is that normal? I normally would like to have three contractors give me an independent estimate to get an idea of what the real cost of a project is what is the average labor cost to installation per square foot he plans to use GAF shingles and also uses Atlas products which is better and what is HD with respect to shingles alright well let's let's start on the three bid process first unless you are comparing everything evenly the three bid process is a crock and here's why. Unless you're going to verify that each contractor carries the same insurance, 
general liability, workers' comp, things like that, you're not comparing apples to apples. Does each contractor have a, a real office? Or are they working out of their pickup truck? Here today, gone tomorrow. What is the experience that each contractor has? And how long have they been in business? You know, most businesses don't survive past five years. And what is the main reason they don't? They don't charge enough to cover long-term expenses. That's the reason when you deal with reputable companies who have been around for a long time, they typically cost more than the guy who's only been around for three years or four years or five years because they understand they have to charge more in order to stay in business. When they don't charge enough, they can't cover all the expenses, they end up going out of business. And I'll, I'll, I know we're talking roofing here, but it doesn't matter what type of business you're in. You've got to be careful on that. And please, please understand, in Texas there is no contractor licensing of any kind. You've got to have a license to do air conditioning work. You've got to have a license to do plumbing and electrical when it comes to being a contractor type stuff. And yes, there's an irrigation license, but plumbers can, can pull that license, that, that permit. Uh, the, the, the whole thing is, it's buyer beware. There's zero regulations on it. And so when you're comparing three bids, you need to make sure you're comparing three of the same type companies. Don't compare the guy who doesn't have an office and working out of his pickup truck to the guy who has an office and 120 employees. It's a night and day difference. Now, beyond that, you got to start then comparing, like you're asking about, the shingle qualities. You know, make sure that all of them are bidding off the same set of plans. And that is a lot of times why roofing contractors want to see the insurance companies bid. Now, do they need that up front? No, they should be able to give you a bid without it. They will customarily ask for it. And even if they give you a bid, they're going to ask for it at some point because they have to make sure that the insurance company included everything. The unfortunate thing is a lot of times the adjusters leave things off of the bid. And so it has to be uh, sent back to the insurance company and say, hey, you missed this, this, and this. And the, the roofing contractors who do a lot of insurance-type jobs they know that, and that's the reason they want to see it, and so that they can address it up front rather than waiting until after the job has started or something like that. It just makes it easier on everybody. So is it customary for them to ask for it? Absolutely. Do they have to have it up front before they give you the, the initial bid? No. They can give you a price, then they can go back and look at it and say, okay, they left this off, and I included that. The other thing is, Insurance companies don't dictate the price. They use an average, but that doesn't mean that's the price that everybody's going to get for it. Uh, a lot of times, insurance quotes end up being less than what the true work is going to cost, and so it ends up getting uh, adjusted that way. Uh, as far as your question, GAF shingles, yeah, GAF shingles are, are fine shingles. Absolutely nothing wrong with them. Atlas products are good as well. What does the HD mean? I don't know. To be honest with you, straight up, I got no idea in, in the aspect of what you're asking me here what the HD is standing for on these particular things. David, welcome to WBAP. How can I help you? 
Well, so I have a house. The previous owners closed off the garage to make some big room and ran a couple of uh, um, um, ducks out there to bring in air. And they, they glued down this indoor-outdoor carpet that is disgusting. I, mean, I think it's just a microcosm of any type of life form out living in it that you can imagine. <laughs> I can't get it up. They glued it down. I can't get it up. Yep. I know DuPont must have a chemical or something. What can I do to get that hideous stuff up? There is no chemical that I'm aware of for loosening up those glues for those floors. Uh, it is just plain brute force to peel them back, and then it's floor scrapers to scrape it off. That's it. I figured if I could get the carpet off, I could muriatic acid the floor, and everything would come up. Uh, you'd be the surprised. Glue. That stuff will probably withstand the acid and not even know it was on it. So I've tried everything. So is there some mega razor sharp scraper or? Yeah, they, is... they they make a uh, scraper that's three or four inches wide that has a blade as sharp as a razor blade that literally you can sc- scrape that stuff up. But uh, and... pull, pulling it, pulling up the, the carpet itself, what you're typically doing is just literally tearing it apart as you're pulling it up. Well, you know, I have a I bought a multi pack of big lighters and a couple of things of uh, of um, lighter fluid. So I'm thinking about doing that route. How would that be? You think? I mean, well, now think? that you put it out on the air, when the insurance company comes to us, I'm going to have to give them a copy of what you do. Not- <laughs> well, you know, they might pat me on the back for getting the job done. But yeah, there you uh, go. You know, I think I think I'm going to leave the two ducks, close them off for summer, then winter, leave them to run some heat out in the garage if I ever need it. Yeah, I'm going to leave those two if that's that's a good idea to you. Are you going to turn it back into a garage? Heck yeah. I'm okay. Dude, you know, that garage, dudes don't have like girly room. Yep. There garage. you go. Uh, tr- truthfully, and the carpet, is it a uh, rubber back or is it just a jute back? I would like to know if I could get some up. You haven't been well, able to get enough up to even see what's on the back no, of it? No, no. It's super, mm. super thin, but I doubt there's any rubberizing. Okay. It's super thin and it's rock hard. You know, yep. it's, it's as hard as a concrete. I'll bet they didn't use a regular carpet glue. Because oh, typically, a, a regular carpet glue, you would typically grab hold of it, and you literally can just rip it on up. And what, oh, it leaves okay. a lot of glue residue that can be scraped off, but uh, it, it it comes off relatively easily, to be honest with you. Okay, one last question. Sure. Out of desperation, do you know a good realtor? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm saying I'm, I'm going to resell this thing. You need to call Todd Tremonte at Tremonte, the Tremonte Group, and uh, they'll take he'll take great care of you. Tremonte isn't he the guitar player for Creed? <laughs> uh, I'll tell him you said that, but no, he's not. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Man. I appreciate take it. care, David. Hello, John. Hey, Jim. Enjoy your show very much. Thank you, sir. I've got a question. A new construction of a home over in, in Rockwall, is there, before pouring the slab, uh, is there any special considerations that should be done uh, so that you can avoid putting in, you know, less, be less prone to soil, uh, to slab movement down the road once the house is up? Well, John, that's not nice to ask me how to put myself out of business. <laughs> Hey, there there actually is. What is on that property prior to you putting in this foundation? It's just, uh, you know, just bare land with some uh, few trees here and there. Okay. Trees are the kiss of death 
for a foundation. Okay. When you knock down a tree, if you don't hydrate the soil before you put that slab down, uh, what happens is the soil starts taking on moisture and heaves. Because what causes most problems is these soils, when they dry out, they shrink. When they get wet, they expand again. And when there's a tree where the slab's going or within you know a few feet of the slab, depending on the size of the tree, the soils are in a dry state. You knock, you kill the tree, the soil starts taking on moisture, and it literally it can expand it. I have seen soils expand as much as 8 inches wow. from trees coming out. That puts a foundation on full tilt, and normally this is going to happen in the first five years, and the only fix is a full underpinning inside and out and pick the house up off the active soils. So if you will, one, take your trees out ahead of time, then you can water that soil and rehydrate it prior to putting the foundation in. And then the big, the big one, have a soils test done to find out what the swell potential is. Uh, the area where you're talking about, there's some areas of, of uh, that area that, that has rocky soil, not a lot of swell potential. But you get to the other side of the freeway, you're in that black gumbo clay soil, and it is extremely expansive. And without that soils report, you don't know what kind of mix you're dealing with. Okay. Where would you go to get that soils report? Uh, alpha testing. Alpha. Is somebody that I use on a regular basis for soils test. Okay. Very good. That's great. I never would have thought of that stuff, Jim. Thanks so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Happy Easter to you. You as well, John. Take care. Bye bye. And and you know, a lot of times people forget about that. I I did a house. I put an addition on one of my houses one time, and I had to cut down a tree in order to put that addition in. And what I did is I cut the tree down, I drilled four feet into the ground and dropped soaker hoses down into the ground, and I watered that soil, no joke, for over a year to get the soils fully expanded. Then I put my addition on, and I actually tiled over an expansion joint, you know, where the old slab and the new slab met. And I followed that house for eight years after that and never cracked the tile. Now, I tied the two foundations together well, but the key thing was hydrating that soil after taking that tree out prior to putting in the foundation. If you don't do that, I will guarantee you're going to have sheetrock cracks where the two join together. And if you try to put any type of hard floor over that joint, it's not going to work. The problem is, so often we want to cut corners, and then it doesn't work. But done properly, yes, you can make things lock together. This is uh, from Kevy. Hello, my dad is a 68-year-old retiree. He inherited his parents' home in Mesquite. He has a letter from the city about the falling-down fence and the in-ground swimming pool. The fence is easy. Get a fencing company to put up a new fence. However, I think that needs to be done right after dealing with the old swimming pool. The letter from the city said something about needing a concrete permit. A permit is needed to haul off old concrete. Are we expected to finish filling it in with concrete? I don't understand what they want. My thought was to have the old sidewalk broke up 
and hauled off, then level off the area with fill dirt. I have no idea who to call about such a problem. Thanks. Well, Kevy, things have really been changing when it comes to taking out old swimming pools. It used to be you would jackhammer the top of the pool off, let it fall into the bottom of the pool. You would have already knocked some holes in the bottom of the pool so it didn't act as a boat. And you would just collapse it in and then fill the top with dirt and be done with it. Now, a lot of cities want you to pull a permit, take the concrete out, then fill it with dirt and compact it. Uh, they're going through just a lot of steps that, uh, honestly, in my opinion, probably don't need to be done. Uh, they, they think they saw it as a means to regulate something that wasn't regulated before. But to answer your question as far as where would you start, I think the first thing you need to do is call the city and find out exactly what they want. What I'm hoping is they don't want you to dig that dirt out and take all that concrete out because if there was no permit, and it looks like the city is requesting a permit, and if one wasn't pulled, they very well may ask you to dig the dirt out, get the concrete out, and fill it the way the city wants it filled. Uh, I have filled many a swimming pools in, and you know it's got to be compacted as you are putting the dirt in a lot of times people think they can just back trucks up to it dump the truckloads of dirt in there and it'll just compact itself it doesn't work that way you really need to do it in little four to six inch lifts using a compactor over it and and i'm not talking about a, a big roller type compactor you can just use a little walk behind tamper type compactor a little vibrating machine pack it down and fill it that way and what that does is it keeps the dirt from settling the first time it rains but i hope that helps you get this taken care of but yeah your first your first call needs to be to the city to find out exactly what they want to do with it question and this comes from matt in north richland hills hello jim i have a gas line hookup that comes out of my brick wall on the back porch the house was built in 2000 and a connector for the gas looks pretty rusty and I'm not sure if it is safe to use. My question is, can I turn off the gas to the house and connector and replace it or do I have to have a licensed plumber do it? I'm pretty handy and nowadays you can YouTube anything. Have a great rainy day. I guess he sent this a couple days ago. Well, here you go. Matt, can you replace it? Yes. Shut the gas off to that line, and if if be, need be, just turn the gas off over at the meter itself, and it, it's really just going to be a threaded pipe. So you can un, unscrew it, screw the new one in. The whole thing is you got to make sure you get it tight where there's no gas leaks. So after you've got the thread the new part threaded on and everything's nice and tight mix up some soapy water put that water on there and see if you've got any bubbles no bubbles no leak everything's good if it has a little bubble that keeps forming tighten it up a little bit more it's really that simple and since you are a do-it-yourselfer I see absolutely no reason you can't take care of this yourself should you be a licensed plumber code does require you 
have a plumber do your gas stuff but if you're doing it on your own place you will be fine so hopefully that helps you out with that now one last thing on it though because you mentioned it's it's rusty just because it has surface rust on it doesn't mean it's bad so what you're worried about on the rust is where it gets so rusted that it's rusting through and causing gas leaks but if you don't have that issue probably not a lot that you need to worry about kelly you're going to be first calling us from sugarland how can i help you hi how are you wonderful um i wanted to find out um i wanted to build a panic room slash bomb shelter and i'm not really sure how to get started okay you want it as a bomb shelter or storm shelter because they actually are different like a bomb shelter okay. and slash panic room. And I didn't know. I know bomb shelters are underground, and panic rooms are usually above ground, but didn't know if you can combine the two. You can, because you could use the underground room as a panic room as well. So Okay. Uh, Would a normal general contractor know to build something like that, or is this a specialty it's going you know. to be a specialty. I mean, there are contractors who specialize in doing storm shelters and such that would also do uh, bomb shelter and, and panic room type construction. Your, okay. Uh, your normal contractors don't really deal with that. And it's going to depend on if you want to put it underground or above ground. Uh, because as far as panic rooms, those a lot of times are above ground. Uh, and it's really... A, a room that walls are lined and a special door on it so they can't just be kicked in and such. The bomb shelter, you get into a whole new realm. That's normally going to be underground. You're going to have a hatch that you go through, and once you're down there, you can secure it where nobody's getting into you. You can have your own air supply, uh, you know, and obviously food and water down there and, and everything you need because if, if there is building a bomb shelter you're typically figuring on something that you're going to stay in for an extended period of time so okay. that that's going to be your biggest difference is this going into a retrofit in other words the house is already there yes okay then more more than likely you're going to want to put this outside of the home now it is possible to put it under like the garage slab or something like that but you're going to get into a lot more money to do that. If you wanted to put it like off the back patio or something like that, that's usually a lot less expensive because they can come in, dig the holes, build the structure underground, and you got to make sure you got good drainage and that the structure you put in is sealed nice and tight and everything. Um, but again, the place to start with is going to be somebody who does storm shelters. Now, I got to be honest with you. In Houston, Texas, I personally would be very concerned with underground uh, structures, only because of our flooding issues and, and how wet our soils are. And Sugarland, you know, a lot of Sugarland just isn't that high. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you get standing water around the, the home? Yeah. Um, you know, we were saying that in the back patio, which where we were thinking of, but then again, you know, once a lifetime when Harvey hit, um, yeah. they actually put back there. <laughs> I, I got to be honest. If if when Harvey hit, if you had 
the area flooded, I would not put an underground structure. And okay. For, for a couple reasons. One, you've got to make the structure airtight, which that in itself is not that big a deal. But when you have an airtight structure and it floods, what what does air do? It floats, and that whole structure could pop up out of the ground. Swimming pools oh, do it all the time because uh, it'll it'll float up just like a boat does. I I think okay. you'd be much better off to uh, pick a room and turn it into a panic room. Uh, and, you know, it could be built strong enough to withstand a lot of stuff. Is it going to be bomb-proof? Probably not, but it'll, you can make it where it's darn near it. Okay. Would you keep the air circulation different from the rest of the house? You well, know, given what you're talking about wanting to use it for, probably so. Now, okay. you could have it where it's on the house air but have it where that can be shut off from inside the room and use its own air supply. Okay. Or build, like, an additional structure that's above ground. Correct. Maybe yep. attached to the house somehow. Yeah. And, and uh, it can be, uh, it's very common, especially, like, up in North Texas and Oklahoma, that they actually have a room in the garage that they that they use for uh Hurricane or hurricanes for tornadoes and things like that to 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 go mm-hmm. into to to withstand that. So, you know, it could, you could do something like that. As far as building a, a bomb shelter, are you concerned with a bombs or with the plants blowing up? Um, just you just never know. I just yeah. figure you know if you're building a panic room, why not make it a bomb shelter at yeah. the same time? Well, and the reason I'm asking that, the money that's going to go into taking something that would be a panic room and, and actually making it to where it's a bomb shelter type room, you're probably talking about doubling the cost. Okay. Because okay. It, it requires much heavier, thicker walls to withstand the impacts of, of bombs and things like that. Okay. Where a panic room... You know, and and especially if you build one that has its own air supply inside and everything, even if a plant blows up, and you know, like I was in Pasadena when for when we were having the uh, oh I forget the name of them now over there on uh, Independence Parkway, the fire that lasted for a week. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, with with a uh, panic room with its own air supply, you could go in there and stay for a pretty good period of time and not have to worry about the contamination of the air. You're typically not going to get the same time frame, though, out of a panic room that you would out of a bomb shelter. So it really depends on what you're going to want to spend it on. But I okay. I, I really do believe doing it above ground. And if you're going to do a bomb shelter, concrete walls with a steel liner is really what you're going to be looking at. Okay. Okay, and look for a, a, a contractor that builds storm shelters. Yep, they'd be the ones who would be building that. Oliver, this is Jim. How can I help you? I've got uh, double doors that lead into a master bath and double doors that lead into the two big closets uh, on either side of it. And uh, the house is now 11, 12 years old. We're second owners. And they've gotten very difficult to close. You have to almost... Uh, rip them off the hinges to get them to close. 
and I wonder what we could do to put on those to make the closing easier without having to change them out. They close with a, a metal ball on top and fits into a slot when the door closes. Right. Is the are both sides of the double door doing it, or just one side? Uh, typically, just one side. Okay. And the reason I was asking that is a lot of times if you start getting just a little bit of movement, whether it's foundation movement or movement in the framework, it'll throw the door out of square a little bit, and that ball doesn't pinch down as easily because it's, you know, it's this just that sixteenth of an inch movement makes it more difficult for the ball to move. So there are some tricks that you can do. If the door frame and everything is still level, you can adjust it, on the yeah. hinges by t- taking the uh, screws out on the top hinge and okay. just put a, a like a piece of uh, cardboard, not the corrugated one, but just like a, that comes, say, uh, oh, when you buy a shirt, you know, you get the, they got the right. cardboard in the collar. A thin right. piece of cardboard like that behind the hinge moves that door just a little bit downward on that outside part where that ball is and it'll probably should take care of aligning it up and make it start working right again okay i sure didn't want to hear that it was possible foundation problems well it, you know uh, it it can be foundation movement but it doesn't mean you have a problem uh, you know people get too scared of that and then they don't want to deal with it and truly if it is just a little bit of movement in the foundation at this point Given what you just described to me, it'd be something as simple as just, you know, keeping it watered to keep the moisture content the same. But we've had so much rain this year, most of the time it's not a matter of lack of water. It's a matter of there's standing water, and yeah. that needs to be dealt with with drainage. Otherwise, your problem will get a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for your help. You bet. Take care. Ah, Let's head over to Texas City. James? How can I help you? Hey, Jim. Uh, probably your youngest listener here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 26, but uh, I have a question. I'm going to remodel my master shower in my, or the shower in my master bath. Right now I have a fiberglass shower, and I want to take it out and put a tile shower in. Okay. Now, um, what kind of backing do I use for before I put the tile in? Make sure you, uh, when you take everything out, get down to the studs and go back with a concrete backer board. A concrete backer board. What kind of, uh, um, I guess, joint compound do I use to seal that backer board and the screw holes? Yeah, it, it, uh, when you pull a backer board, they actually mm-hmm. have instructions with it, and you are correct. You tape and float it just like you would sheetrock. Okay. Uh, and then... You actually can put an over a sealer over the top of that if you want. I don't. T- I typically don't uh, myself, okay. but some people do. And uh, then your tile can go straight onto it. The, behind the concrete backer board, you normally put a vapor barrier as well, yes, just to seal barrier. everything up. But yeah. yeah, that that's that's what I would do. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.